when these patients are discharged from this particular procedure, they will bounce back. These are high-risk patients, usually due to their comorbidities. This isn't some crazy rare thing. This is very common with an incidence as high as 41%. But sometimes things happen at home. It's imperative for us to know some of these complications. Welcome, everyone, to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. Thanks for joining us on this podcast. I'm Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. We are excited to talk to you on this podcast. We've got a great educational content this month on a condition, on a procedure that has increased in frequency, and it's something we really have to know in emergency medicine because when these patients are discharged from this particular procedure, they will bounce back, and some do bounce back with some very severe and potentially dangerous and life-threatening complications. But before diving into that, let me bring in my superstar co-hosts here on CCPEM. You know them all so well. Dr. John Greenwood, Dr. Rob Rodriguez, and Dr. Peter W. Gentlemen, thanks for joining me on this podcast this evening as we record. John, how are you doing this month? Doing great, Mike. No news to report from Philadelphia, but you know, happy to be here with all of you. Outstanding. Dr. Rodriguez. Doing very well also, enjoying the summer down here in California, which as Mark Twain noted, can often be the coldest uh, winter. Duly noted. And Dr. W, down south. Yeah, so things are pretty hot and humid in New Orleans. We just finished up with Essence Festival, so that was kind of a great time here. And now just into the rainy, hot days of summer. Well, Peter, I hope from all of these podcasts, as our listeners continue to listen in, every time I turn to you for just to say hello, there's another festival (laughs) in New Orleans. So hopefully people are making some plans to travel to New Orleans because it certainly sounds like a wonderful place. And quite honestly, it's been too long since I visited. So I, I may be heading your way soon. That would be great. You're all welcome. Outstanding. Well, I'm going to turn things over to Dr. Greenwood to take us through this podcast. And John, where I got the idea for this is really on a shift in the ED last week. I was getting sign out and we got sign out on a patient that had come in during the previous shift, had come in with some heart failure type symptoms, just not looking well. And they were status post a recent TAVR, a transcatheter aortic valve replacement, and had been discharged just a few days earlier from the cardiac surgery ICU. And they had one of the complications that we're about to talk about. And as we went through sign out rounds and just thinking a little bit more, I thought to myself, this is something that, you know what, I'm hearing with increased frequency on sign out in the ED. And we're having patients status post this procedure come in, not necessarily always for a complication, but having a TAVR in their history. And it's something that I think we really need to know about. As you will tell us, you know, we're increasing and doing more of these, in fact, more than now surgical aortic valve repair. And so it really behooves us. It's imperative for us to know some of these complications. And in doing a little research after that patient, there was an article that just came out in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine by some friends of ours. Lead author was Dr. Rouleau, but also included Dr. Bill Brady and Dr. Britt Long, essentially on a really wonderful review on TAVR complications for the emergency physician. And that's going to serve as our article here for this discussion. But having said all of that, I'm going to turn things over to you. Take us through this since, as we mentioned in our pre recording prep, this is really in your wheelhouse with cardiac surgery. So, Take it away, my friend. 
Yeah, absolutely, Mike. And you know, it's funny that you mentioned you saw this on one of your last shifts because while you work at the University of Maryland, a big academic center, these are becoming a lot more common and even being placed a lot more in our community centers. So I guarantee that working at University of Maryland, people are seeing these all over and particularly in our EDs, seeing complications. So this is a great topic. I'm so glad you brought this to the table today. So I think all of us know aortic stenosis is a pretty common valvular disease in the U.S. In fact, it's the second most common that we see in the United States. In Europe and North America, usually these valves are pretty calcified as the most common etiology for AS, but the severity of AS, if everyone just thinks back into the depths of their brain, it's determined by aortic valve area and the gradient that is measured across the valve itself. So when we measure severe AS, if you're looking at maybe a previous echocardiogram or recent one, if you take a look at the valve area calculation and it's 0.7 to one centimeter squared, that's going to be severe AS, particularly if the gradient is high and greater than 40 millimeters of mercury. Now that's not the highest or the worst AS you can have. There's actually critical AS if the valve area is less than 0.7 centimeters squared. So if they have critical AS, oftentimes these patients are in real trouble. Now, traditionally, we used to do open or surgical aortic valve replacements for these patients. But over the years, we've become a lot more facile with new technology and sort of less invasive cardiac surgery. And a lot of times, particularly if patients aren't suitable for an open repair, they'll be referred for a TAVR. So these are high-risk patients, usually due to their comorbidities, and they're treated with a transcatheter aortic valve replacement. Now, these have been going on since 2002, but in 2011, the FDA finally approved them for these high-risk patient groups. Now, even since 2011, we've seen the valve technology improve. We've seen a kind of shift in the types of complications that we're seeing presenting in a delayed fashion after surgery. But the fact of the matter is, is that we're seeing more TAVRs now than surgical aortic valve replacements in these high-risk patients in particular. So the TAVR appears to be superior to surgical repair in terms of mortality, stroke, and readmissions after about a year. But with the increase of these procedures, we certainly need to be aware as emergency physicians of the delayed complications that can occur as these patients represent to our emergency departments, either within the first month or two after surgery, or even six months to a year later. So why don't we at least just to get an idea of what's happening in the ICU immediately after surgery, Mike, what are some of the common complications that we look for immediately in the ICU? And then we'll talk about maybe more of the delayed complications. John, that was an outstanding introduction to this topic. And when we talk about periprocedural complications, those that are occurring shortly after the procedure itself, so many of those listening are our residents who are rotating in a variety of ICUs, as well as critical care physicians working in ICUs. I think it's at least worth mentioning, I think the three big ones that the article goes over that are in that early periprocedural or perioperative sec- time course. And Primary one is, or the three, are really obstruction of the coronary arteries. So in terms of these, all of these tend to be rare, so they're not as common. But if that valve ends up obstructing one of the coronary or several of the coronary artery ostea, well, that makes sense that it may lead to an acute coronary syndrome and ultimately lead to someone who presents acutely in cardiogenic shock. So this is one of the most dreaded 
and deadly complications in that early periprocedural course. And often these patients need to go right back to the OR, get placed on ECMO. In some cases, you have placement of an intra-aortic balloon pump. Some may develop cardiac tamponade, so this is usually identified either intraoperatively or in that unstable patient who's just out of the OR using your bedside ultrasound. We would treat it the same with pericardiocentesis. And then, John, I'm going to kick things back to you. This seems like a very, very bad complication, and that's valve embolization. Thankfully, the incidence is under 1%, but I can't imagine people surviving if that valve actually embolizes. Is this something that you've seen? So interestingly enough, in our M&Ms over the past year, this is more of a intraoperative sort of issue. And University of Pennsylvania, we do a ton of TAVRs. And there was one this past year where the valve was deployed and it sort of tilted and they caught it immediately. And they ended up converting to an open procedure and the surgical valve replacement and the patient did great. But certainly this is something that our surgeons and our proceduralists are always looking out for. We have our cardiac anesthesia colleagues who are doing continuous TEE. And so this is usually identified really quickly, but also very, very uncommon. So that was a great review, Mike. And uh, certainly intra-op and immediately post-op complications. Those are the three that I'm looking for in the ICU particularly. But there are a number of things that happen maybe in the next month or so. Now, these patients who receive TAVRs often stay in the hospital, sometimes as few as five, maybe seven days, depending on their operative course, and then they're discharged home. And so certainly they're given a set of discharge instructions and they have a post-operative follow-up, but sometimes things happen at home and some of these red flags pop up and they come into the emergency department. So Peter, this is a non-invasive procedure, if you will, or minimally invasive, if you will. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the vascular access site complications that can occur in this patient population? Yeah, John, I think these are worth reviewing for us because we're going to be seeing these in the ED. And so the access sites for TAVR include more commonly now radial artery. Some do go into the femoral artery and some actually use subclavian artery through the deltopectoral groove. Those are the three, but I would be looking more commonly as of late as the radial artery has been hot. The incidence of an access site bleeding is now six to 8%. So this isn't some crazy rare thing. This is something that we're going to wind up dealing with most likely in the emergency department. The risk factors for those arterial bleeding include, again, if there's a sharp artery angulation, so anatomical challenges with access, peripheral artery disease, so people with pre-existing disease, and so we need to be aware of that. And those folks with end-stage renal disease who have those uremic dysfunctional platelets, so be on the lookout for those. And then patients with TAVR are also placed on dual antiplatelet therapy. So that places them at risk for bleeding complications post-access. So when we're evaluating the patients that have TAVR complications, we need to make sure that we're identifying and reviewing the access site, whether it be the wrist, the groin, or the axilla on our routine physical exams. 
We want to treat those patients with bleeding problems with initially direct pressure at the site, right? We're going to resuscitate those folks as needed and measure H&H and transfuse if indicated, and then consult our vascular surgery colleagues. Patients may require some procedural intervention to actually stop the bleeding. So that's why the vascular folks may need to be tagged as you're it. The other component, not just bleeding sites, but the creation of a pseudoaneurysm. Now, thankfully, these are rare, less than 1% of the time. But remember that when we're differentiating hematoma from pseudoaneurysm, we both might have some palpable pulse at the site, but what you're going to really use to differentiate is the brewing on auscultation. And that's going to be present in the pseudoaneurysm. And the trigger for you is to go ahead and get the official ultrasound and get a Doppler ultrasound in place so that you can speak with our vascular colleagues in an intelligent fashion to get them in the door. Know this, that pseudoaneurysms less than three centimeters typically resolve spontaneously. That those greater than three centimeters, those are going to be the ones that are at greater risk for rupture. And so they tend to require consultation by our vascular colleagues for surgical repair. And that really wraps up the access problems, both from a bleeding site risk, as well as pseudoaneurysm risk, John. Yeah, Peter, that's awesome. And the pseudoaneurysm is a real thing I've seen a number of times. About a month ago, I was in triage and a patient came in after TAVR and these patients will often complain of, you know, persistent groin site bleeding or oozing or maybe some swelling. And he actually had a scrotal hematoma and he's like, I just woke up and my scrotum was massive and it was purple. And I was like, oh boy, I was like, is this like a neck fash or something like that? But as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh man, he's leaking from his puncture site. And sometimes it can just happen because of the patient, their anatomy. It can happen just because of maybe too short of pressure or maybe they're bearing down, but we see this often. So scrotal hematoma, persistent bleeding at any of these access sites. Absolutely. That's a great pickup by you that a pseudoaneurysm has to be high on our differential. So let's turn to Rob. So certainly there are some complications specific to the valve itself. There's a number that I'm worried about, but maybe Rob, you could walk us through what are the big ones that we need to think about in the ED, maybe the patient who's coming in recent tavern and shortness of breath or fever or something like that. Yeah, John, we're going to talk about four mechanical valve, prosthetic valve complications from tavern. And those four are going to be paravalvular leak. That's P-A-R-A valvular leak, valve thrombosis, prosthetic valve endocarditis, and then delayed coronary obstruction. So starting with paravalvular leak, this is defined as when blood leaks between the outer aspect of the prosthetic valve and the native cardiac tissue, sort of that a leak in between the implant, so to speak. And this is very common with an incidence as high as 41% of patients at some point may develop this. Moderate leaks are about 8 to 12% of people may develop that. And then severe leaks are 3 to 12%. And these can present to the ED as new onset heart failure or hemolysis. And the pearl here is that new onset anemia in a TAVR patient without signs of bleeding should point you to the diagnosis of hemolysis. And so you should check a peripheral smear a haptoglobin, an LDH, 
and look for indirect hyperbilirubinemia and or hemosiderin in the UA. And so again, that's a very important thing to consider when you have a patient who's had a TAVR and has hemolysis. You can perform a POCUS in the ED with a short axis view offering the best visualization of the lead and estimation of regurgitation on that short axis view. But sometimes you'll need to order a formal TTE or even a TEE and a cardiac MRI may be needed if the other modalities are not diagnostic. For this, you should consult cardiac surgery and cardiology, your colleagues there to help manage that case. The next complication is valve thrombosis. And this is much less common. The incidence is up to about 3%. And patients here present with prosthetic valve dysfunction and signs and symptoms of left-sided heart failure. Notably, shortness of breath is the most common presenting symptom with this. And this is associated with an increased risk of embolic stroke. And patients with TAVR and embolic stroke should always be evaluated for valve thrombosis. This again is demonstrated on ED POCUS or TTE, in which case you may see a mobile mass or a thrombus, but oftentimes you may need that higher level of imaging in cases of new onset cardiopulmonary symptoms and a negative transthoracic echo. Patients with valve thrombosis are treated with anticoagulation. The third complication is prosthetic valve endocarditis, and this also is less common than the first complication. And the incidence of endocarditis is approximately 2%, and patients usually present several months after their procedure. The most common organisms here are going to be strep, enterococcus, or MRSA. And this can often be difficult to diagnose as transthoracic echo may be negative in up to 32% of these patients. So basically a third of these patients who do have endocarditis from TAVR may have a negative transthoracic echo. So you should have a low index of suspicion for endocarditis in these patients who present with fever and other signs of sepsis, but don't have a clear source. Of course, you should diagnose and treat them as you would other types of endocarditis, you should obtain multiple blood cultures and initiate antibiotics specifically for gram-negative coverage. The final complication is delayed coronary obstruction, and this is very rare. It's most likely to occur after an in-valve procedure in which TAVR is replacing the prior prosthetic valve. And with these cases, it's going to present like a STEMI or even cardiac arrest. So this is a very severe complication and fortunately is also very, very rare. Rob, that's perfect. Certainly, whenever I talk to my residents about patients with TAVRs or really any prosthetic valve, gotta think about valve failure, endocarditis, and particularly new insufficiencies or leaks, whether within the valve itself or around. That was a great summary. Well, Mike, let's turn back to you We've talked about some of the flow problems, some of the valve complications, but what about the conduction system of the heart? Any complications that could rise from electrical conduction problems? 
Absolutely. Whenever you're think you're messing around with the valve, you can predispose to arrhythmias. And no surprise, we're going to see a few increased incidents of arrhythmias here in our TAVR patients. And let's start off with the most common, and that would be AFib. So patients who undergo TAVR are predisposed to AFib. Many have pre-existing coronary disease and may even have a history of atrial fibrillation prior to undergoing the procedure. But if they don't, or even if they do, the incidence can be upwards of 20% of patients post-TAVR have an episode of atrial fibrillation. And at present, the data is conflicting. There may be an associated increased risk of this new onset AFib status post-TAVR with stroke or even increase in mortality. Once again, data is conflicting, but it is possible as an increased risk factor for CVA along with mortality. Now, the management, let's just say we get a patient coming in AFib, RVR, they have their status post-TAVR. Well, it's actually going to be the same. If they're unstable, we're going to provide electrical therapy. We're going to cardiovert them. Rate or rhythm control wherever you are in the world and the preference over rate or rhythm, it's going to be the same. And then providing systemic anticoagulation depending on using a CHADS-VAS2 score. Now, aside from AFib, we see two other types of arrhythmias. Left bundle branch block tends to actually occur in a fair amount of patients after a TAVR. And interestingly, I found this as a nice pearl in the article, is that it actually may resolve in up to 50% of patients spontaneously, but anywhere from 50 to 55% will have a left bundle branch block on their EKG following this procedure. And in contrast to AFib, where the data is conflicting about a risk factor for mortality, this actually is associated with a higher cardiovascular mortality. Now, the management in patients who do develop a new left bundle branch, well, that remains uncertain. If you're seeing this in the emergency department, it's a new EKG finding, best to obtain cardiology consultation and work through it with your cardiology colleagues. And then the last big one, John, is really high-grade AV block. And this tends to occur, if it's going to occur, relatively soon after the TAVR. And most of them occur within 24 hours up to seven days after the procedure. So during that time, as you mentioned, after the procedure and while they're still in the hospital. However, delayed presentation can be possible. So when you've got that patient, syncope, near syncope, or symptomatic bradycardia, and you see that TAVR in their surgical history, be sure to look for high-grade AV block. And in many of these cases, that would be an indication for a pacemaker. So John, I think that covers the big ones in terms of conduction issues. We see cardiac arrhythmias, AFib, left bundle branch block, and then high-grade AV block. That's perfect, Mike. And, you know, interestingly, the valves that we're using for TAVR have changed even over the past five years. And we used to be seeing a lot more of these delayed high-grade AV blocks, complete heart block even. And that usually happened because the previous valves actually, when they were seated, they were placed inappropriately, but over time, that annulus would expand and it would slowly kind of expand and impinge on kind of the SAAV node or somewhere in between. And we would see these complete heart blocks developed, but that's definitely gotten a lot less over the past few years, which has been great to see. Now, Peter, one of the reasons why we do TAVRs, oftentimes it's because these are high-risk patients and Really, they've revolutionized aortic valve replacement surgery because they've decreased the number of the severe end organ injuries that we're always worried about in terms of long-term outcomes whenever we're doing any of these procedures. So maybe walk us through some of the maybe longer-term complications that we might see after TAVR. Yeah. When we break these down post-TAVR, 
what we're really talking about are end organ injuries or dysfunctions. And the main one that we want to be concerned about thinking about is stroke. And there's bimodal distribution. So there's the acute episode. And first, we need to kind of say that there's the whole incidence is two to 5% incidence of stroke associated with TAVR. And that bimodal distribution, half of those occur within the first 24 hours. So it's something that we need to be tuned into in emergency medicine. The remaining 50% occur post really 10 days after the procedure. Some of the risk factors for those people associated with stroke post-TAVR include pre-existing peripheral artery disease, right? So we can think about all that plaque disruption, prior TIAs, those folks with a low BMI, and then folks who have prior falls, as well as a prior history of angina. Any patient that has neurosymptoms after a TAVR should be evaluated for stroke. That should be on our list of tuned in, the kind of spidey sense at the back of your neck, thinking about those patients and going over them very carefully with a neurological exam. TAVR valves are compatible with MRI. So if you're thinking all I can get is a CT, that's not the case. All of our TAVRs are being done with material that's compatible for the MRI. And TAVR is not an absolute contraindication to thrombolytic or mechanical thrombectomy therapies. Either one of those can be used. When we talk about coronary artery disease, so we're leaving stroke now, going to coronary artery disease, ACS, and MI, many patients who undergo TAVR have pre-existing coronary artery disease, right? So they run in the same group. Up to 10% of patients may experience acute coronary syndrome following their TAVR. The mechanism is really uncertain, and it's believed to be primarily related to atheroembolic events triggering that. And then the treatment of MI in post-TAVR patients can be a little bit dicey as the prosthetic valve can block access to the coronary artery system, right? And so there's a lot going on in a small space. So we need to be cognizant of that. Typical emergency department treatment for ACS or MI doesn't differ in TAVR patients. It's going to be antiplatelet agents, which are already going to be on, and then anticoagulates as our routine and then involve our interventional folks on board. That's incredible, Peter. You know, Rob, Peter, Mike, you guys have done such a phenomenal job summarizing the approach to the patient with a recent TAVR comes into the ED and summarize kind of the big pearls that I took away from what you guys are saying. And also to reinforce really thinking about vascular access complications like pseudoaneurysm, valve complications like endocarditis or new insufficiency caused by either endocarditis or valve failure, valve thrombosis, or even thinking lastly, arrhythmias like AFib, pretty common heart block, less common, but obviously critically ill when they come into the ED. And then lastly, kind of the long-term complications that we're going to keep an eye out for like stroke and recurrent MI. Wonderful summary, guys. Thank you so much for going through this. This is obviously a topic that I love talking about, but you guys really crushed it. Thanks. Outstanding job. John, thanks for taking us through that. I've certainly learned a lot throughout this podcast and learned a lot more than I knew last week when I got signed out on this particular patient and had the paravalvular leak. But all of these other things, it's been a really outstanding discussion here. And last podcast, we welcomed all of our new interns 
And hopefully July is moving smoothly. And I hope that we've provided you with some great pearls here because undoubtedly, regardless of where you work, you will see a patient that has a TAVR in their surgical history or they're coming in because they've recently been discharged after this procedure and they've got one of these complications. So please let us know if you have any follow-up questions. We'll have that associated handout for this podcast episode. Wishing you well for the remainder of July, and we will look forward to talking to you on our next podcast. Bye for now.